So hi, I'm Paul McGregor, mental health advocate and speaker, and you are listening to the Just Checking In podcast. Hi everyone, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, as always. This podcast is brought to you by Events, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. Today's guest is someone I have wanted to get on the pod for quite some time now, and he has written about a host of fascinating and thought-provoking subjects, including those sometimes not discussed in the mainstream. He is definitely not someone who's afraid to veer from the established opinion on anything and stay true to his values, which is something I greatly admire. His name is James Bloodworth. James is a journalist, writer, and broadcaster. He has written for outlets including The Guardian, New Statesman, and Unheard, to name a few, and is also the host of the Modern Dating Economy podcast. He has written two books, The Myth of Meritocracy, Why Working Class Kids Get Working Class Jobs, which was published in 2016, and then Hired, Six Months Undercover in Low Wage Britain, which was published in 2019. In this episode, we discuss James's journey into journalism, a discussion of both of his books and the mental health topics they discuss, masculinity in the modern age, dating, gym culture and lookism. We also discuss James's diagnosis of attention deficit disorder or ADD, his struggle to manage it in academic environments and the impact that having a stalker had on him and his mental health. This pod's going to be a big one, but a great one. So make sure you've got a long walk or a nice relaxing bath whilst you listen to it. I'm also going to point out here that I'm using a new podcast software recording platform form for this pod and for future pods going forward so it doesn't quite for some reason catch the very start of our conversation but don't worry I'm hopeful that you won't hear any more errors in the pod throughout. This is how our check-in went. To be honest it's one of those surreal moments where I didn't actually think I'd be able to get you on so I'm very appreciative that you accepted the invitation. Given everything that's going on at the moment, how are you and how are you coping, I guess? Yeah, I'm I'm okay, really, which is kind of enough at the moment. It's been probably the weirdest year of my life, but I suspect that's true for a lot of people. I'm trying not to read too much news at the moment. I've been through periods over the last nine months where I'll spend a week just doom scrolling a lot and making myself anxious and whatnot. But I've, I've moderated that and now I'm just trying to get on with things with a fairly optimistic view that some kind of normality will resume later this year. We have a ton of stuff to get through, mate. So shall we just cut the small talk and get on with the show? Let's start the pod, James, by talking about your journalism journey. So why don't you tell the listeners first about why you became inspired to be a journalist, where your love for writing or filming or you know even photography began and investigating and then how you got into the industry i didn't initially when i was in college for example i wasn't set on being a journalist i was more at the time i was more interested in politics but i was also interested in writing but the idea to be a journalist came a bit later i think partly because i come from a family where no one had been to university before i went and there was no one in my family or social circle who'd been a journalist before so it wasn't really within my reality that that was something I could do until I went on to university and then met some kind of other people who wanted to do that job. I guess the reason why I gravitated towards that as opposed to going into say some political career was I was always interested in politics. I was brought up in a home where 
with my grandmother and step-grandfather, if you like. I was brought up in a home where you were encouraged to be interested in politics. It was talked about a lot. The news would always be on and things like this, and you kind of start to develop an interest in it. But I gravitated more towards journalism in the end because I didn't really like the... Like, to progress in politics, you have to basically suck up to people, I guess. You have to form your kind of band of supporters or whatever. You have to stick to the ideological line. Whereas journalism, I think you have a lot more freedom. You have a lot more freedom to simply follow where you think the kind of truth leads or follow the evidence that leads you to the truth. And you don't have to necessarily toe the line. That kind of sense of freedom that you get with journalism, with writing, ultimately, I found that really appealing because I was always into writing and books and literature and whatnot as well. As you made your way into the industry, what challenges did you face and how did any of them impact your mental health positively or negatively? The initial challenges in terms of, you know, coming from like a working class, lower middle class background where you don't have those reference experiences within your family and immediate social circle of people who've walked that path before you. That can be limiting straight away. So you have to look much more like externally for role models. So we all do that to some extent anyway. So, you know, you might read your favorite journalist, you might read your favorite author when you're young and be like, oh, I want to do something like that. But I think if you come from a background where you don't have people in your immediate kind of reality who've walked that path before you, or at least something relatively close, I think that can be a, a hurdle in itself because then you have to seek out people to make, so it becomes this realistic path you can walk. Otherwise, it's very abstract. I want to be a journalist and it's you have no close reference experiences. That would be the first kind of like, is this a realistic thing to do would be the first hurdle I face. And I don't think someone who, you know, went to a posh school, maybe someone who went to college and was then had friends, their parents were journalists or whatnot. I don't think that would be quite the same challenge. And then once I'd got into the industry, you sometimes do get a kind of imposter syndrome, which is funny because you can get that even after you've had like some achievements. So even you've written a book and it's been published and it's been received well, you can still then, based on kind of very arbitrary things, because you didn't go to the right school or you don't have the home county's accent, you can still still feel like an imposter. So when my book Hired came out, when I wrote the book Hired, I mean, I went to research low paid jobs. I spent six months going around these low paid companies. And weirdly enough, at the time I felt more at home with my workmates in those jobs than I felt at some of the functions I'd go to in Westminster, like wine evenings for a book launch or something. It still feels, you know, you kind of know who your people are, if that makes sense. The people who you relate to on a really basic level based on having shared, you know, backgrounds and stuff. But that can be an imposter syndrome when you're in kind of career orientated environments. I want to go back a little bit before we dive into Hired because the first book you wrote was called The Myth of Meritocracy. It reads a bit like a history lesson on the concept of social mobility itself, which I thought was a really nice touch. For the listeners who don't know, what is social mobility? And then tell me how the book came about and, you know, was it a big moment in your life having it out there? Social mobility, that was something that I kind of found personally interesting because on some level I'm socially mobile so like I was born in Bridgewater it's like a working class kind of outpost in Somerset so you know it's, this is an area where and I'm living close to there at the moment during the pandemic Bridgewater is a town where it's, it's a very working class town but it's surrounded by kind of Tory heartlands it's a kind of bit of an anomaly when people hear I'm from Somerset they think automatically like I'm either a farmer or middle class but I was born in Bridgewater and then today I'm a journalist and I live in London non-pandemic times so you could say I'm socially mobile. So that was interesting on a personal level because you see the hurdles that are in front of you in some ways. So I didn't do particularly well in my GCSEs. I talk about later that was to do with having ADHD. 
And then I went back to college when I was 19 to basically to retake some exams and then do A-levels. I was officially a mature student and at the time you had to pay £900 to repeat some of this stuff, to go back because, it, because I was over 19. And my grandmother actually paid for that. £900, this was a few years ago. I didn't have that money at the time. And my grandmother paid the money and you know it, it set me thinking because after that I went to university, then did a master's, then moved to London, then got a job and then was a journalist. But the point was, you know, it's so much down to luck. If my grandmother hadn't had that money up front, then I wouldn't have been able to go back to college and I would have just, it, my life would have panned out completely differently. Then at college I did sociology and we looked at social mobility and that stuff and meritocracy again. So that set me really into thinking a lot about how, you know, we kind of fetishize talent in our society. We fetishize like hard work and hard work is a good thing. I'm not saying that, but there are also so many invisible barriers that if you're not coming up against them yourself, it's very easy not to kind of understand that lived experience, I suppose. And I was like not in the worst position. You know, there are people in a far worse position than me. So it really got me thinking about how that can impact someone who had many, you know, many, many more hurdles in front of them as well. In the book, you lay out the rate at which the idea of social mobility is decreasing in this country and why that is. Can you give the listeners some stats around that? And, and if social mobility is decreasing at the rate it's doing, what are the mental health implications for the aspirations of working class young people to dream big? The social mobility is very hard to kind of measure overall social mobility because, for example, following the Second World War when Britain, it was still an industrial, industrialised country, but there were a lot more kind of clerical jobs, a lot more office jobs. There was more room at the top. There were more middle class jobs suddenly created. And that was accelerated again with the kind of tech revolution and the arrival of, you know, the Internet. If you look at on a surface level, it looks like after the Second World War, there was loads of social mobility because there were all these people who had families who'd worked in factories before and now their kids were going to work in offices and stuff. So it looks, you know, a wonderful social mobility. This is more just about a big structural change. So there's more room at the top, whereas nowadays the economy isn't changing in that way. In many ways, there are more precarious jobs. So in many ways, even middle class jobs are uh, becoming more proletarianized in some ways. So you have university lecturers on precarious temporary, like zero hours, con temporary contracts, this kind of thing. And you have, you know, journalism, journalism in a few decades ago, I maybe would have been have a staff job. But now there are fewer of those. And it's more like freelance, more precarious, no sick pay, annual leave, that kind of thing. So it can be very hard to figure out exactly what's going on with social mobility. And I think that's especially true at the moment where the whole world is seemingly in chaos. I mean, things like recessions are typically very poor for social mobility. People who graduate in, in a recession tend to earn, I think, 25% more, 25% less, sorry, on average over a certain period of time. It might be a lifetime than people who graduate in, you know, good economic times. That's like a huge difference. But in terms of, you know, what should working class people take from this i mean we still do live in a society where if you work hard and you have a bit of good luck and you have a, a reasonable start in life you can make something of yourself so i wrote a book about saying meritocracy is we shouldn't fetishize meritocracy and make it the be all and end all of social policy like my brother works in a laboring job and he was never really interested in the academic side of work and college and, and whatever. But then that doesn't make him any less of a person who's entitled to like a decent wage and, you know, a living wage and good place to live, good kind of social life in this area. The problem with social mobility is it says that, you know, you need to leave your community and you need to leave your class. And the only way to kind of live a kind of fulfilling life is to acquire these academic credentials move away and get a certain type of professional job. 
and make lots of money. And that to me is a very narrow idea of what a good life is. We should also equip people who don't want to go down the academic route with the opportunity to learn a skill, the opportunity to stay in their local community, the opportunity to like stay in this seaside town where I am now, where you have to give people who, like, I felt like I had to move away in order to get a job that was remotely close to my interests. A lot of people don't want to do that. And that actually holds a lot of working people back at the moment. The fact that they don't want to move to London, the fact that they don't necessarily want to move to a big city. And I think just to kind of round that point off, the pandemic, I think after, as we start to come out of it and we start to rebuild the economy, I hope there'll be more focus on, I guess, localism. So ensuring that for people to be socially mobile, they don't necessarily have to completely uproot and drop everything and move away from their families and the places where they've grown up. I wanted to do that. It was like my choice, but I think that stops a lot of people from fulfilling their potential. The final question on MOM before we move on is around identity politics, James, which you discussed towards the end of the book and the lack of representation for white working class men and women in the arguments around diversity. You write that the challenges they face around access to you know, the upper echelons of society is sometimes ignored or dismissed by liberal progressivism arguments because of their supposed economic privilege as opposed to their racial privilege. Can you unpack that a bit for me and what mental health implications that might have on working class people? So I think one of the issues with identity politics is, first of all, on a sometimes even people who mean well. I think it's important to have diversity in the upper echelons of our society. Like I think we should aim for diversity of gender and ethnicity in boardrooms, for example. It's, it's a, a fairly easy argument to agree with. But I think what happens is because class is often manifest in more subtle ways, it tends to be often ignored. That's one reason why it's ignored. It's not, not even a deliberate thing. So you'll see middle class jobs, for example, or middle class people will talk about the importance of diversity in these certain, you know, corporate environments or public sector environments or the political sphere. And the emphasis will be on, you know, equal gender split and then the correct portion of ethnic minorities. And class is like so many times, I've like lost count a long time ago of the number of times that conversation happens and class is just not, it doesn't figure in the conversation. And my argument with that would be an obvious one is that people of working class background face as many barriers as ethnic minority groups in Britain. I think the data is very clearly says that. And this is also a problem, I think, because the idea that all ethnic minorities face the same level of discrimination is problematic as well. So there's a vast difference between, for example, the academic performance of Afro-Caribbean boys and West African boys for example, in the British education system. So it's not correct to just say that black boys are failed by our education system. There are more complicated things going on. Similarly, with if you look at people from Indian backgrounds in Britain, in the education system and in the, in the work environment, they tend to do very well. They tend to be professionals, high earners, to dominate industries like dentistry, pharmacy and healthcare. And yet the Pakistani Muslim population tends to have poor outcomes in the education system you know, as poor outcomes as white working class boys. It's more complex. It's not enough to simply say that, for example, which you hear, you know, the education fails BAME people. There are moving parts, there are different things going on. But white working class boys, I think, get left out of that conversation a lot. And also class is often, so when you bring up class in this context and you say, hang on a minute, why have you left working class people out of this equation? Or when you critique identity politics, you get told often that, well, class is just another form of identity politics, which I don't think is quite true. I think, you know, it's not a choice. Ethnicity isn't just a form of identity. I'm not saying that, but class affects people of all backgrounds. It's something that 
if you're born into a working class environment, regardless of the color of your skin, you have to kind of sell your labor to work. It's not an identity, it's you have to live. You have to sell your labor to an employer. And I think sometimes the reason why identity politics, I think obscures some of the real inequalities is that you'd actually improve the lot of BAME people if you focused on class inequalities as well. So in London, for example, like a majority of the lowest paid workers are migrant workers and workers from ethnic minorities. So just worrying about getting a few ethnic minorities into the boardroom doesn't do that much to help those people. Whereas if you focus more on class issues, not ignoring racism, but brought class issues into that as well. So looked at like living wage, looked at workers' rights, you'd actually improve a lot of more BAME people than you would if you simply focused on this very top level diversity. So it's, you know, this lean in philosophy where equality just means the same number of a boardroom that looks like the rest of society. Whereas, you know, you really want to see what's going on at the bottom as well. I completely understand what you're saying. And there's a strong argument to remove the term BAME because of the things you've just outlined as well. For many people from black backgrounds or from Asian backgrounds, they often feel like the term doesn't really account for their experiences and groups them all together. I want to move on to your book Hired now because it's the one that really uncovered so much malpractice and shady goings on across Britain with large scale employers, particularly Amazon. I guess for you it was probably your big break and I feel like the book is as much about class as it is about exposing this malpractice and negligence, if I'm probably right in saying. Can you tell me how the book came about and why you wanted to write it? And did it feel like it was your big break? So Hired, I got the idea to write Hired in 2015. I hadn't written the Meritoxy book, but I was kind of, uh, I had an agent and we were pitching it around to some publishers. And then like at the end of 2015, David Cameron was still the prime minister. So it feels like a long time ago now. Um, and the narrative in politics at the time was that Britain was on the road to recovery after the, you know, after the 2008 recession, it took a few years for the economy to start growing again. And 2015, the headlines were there were a record number of people in jobs. The economy was getting back to growth. The Tories had just won an election. So there was, there was a lot of kind of triumphalism, you know, because David Cameron had won a majority. But when you actually dug into the data, something was going on, something more disconcerting was, was happening. So, you know, we saw the headline figures that, you know, record number of people in work, but behind the headlines, there were millions of people being put on things like zero hours contracts. So there was a huge rise in people who were doing gig work, whereas someone might have lost their job, a full time job in the 2008 recession. Then when they re-entered the workplace, they were in a job with, say, no holiday pay, no sick pay and no minimum wage. It's good that they've got a job, but there was a quite a significant erosion of people's terms and conditions and the rates of pay people were on, the number of hours people were on. So you had people working just a couple of hours a week who were taken off unemployment roles. So, you know, they're classed as employed, yet their employers only given them a couple of hours a week. I decided I wanted to do a new project at the end of 2015. And so I thought, you know, 2016, I'll pitch this book to, you know, Atlantic were interested in it. And I decided 2016, I'm just going to spend a big portion of the year just traveling around the country like working jobs that I'd done 10 years before out of necessity. Before I went to university in 2006, I'd worked in a yogurt factory. You know, a job just where you put the lids on yogurts basically and put them into pallets all day. Four days on, four days off, like 12 hours each shift or something like that. Anyway, I'd done all these jobs when I was younger. You know, I was a bus driver as well. Done all these jobs when I was younger and I just kind of wanted to when I worked in those jobs out of necessity, there'd be things I wanted to say but couldn't articulate at the time. Whereas 10 years later, I'd, I was a trained journalist, I'd done a lot of writing, and I wanted to kind of go back to that world 
and tell the story of the people I used to be my workmates, people I used to work with, and tell that kind of story from the position of, you know, now I could 10 years later. So it was, it was kind of those two things. And I guess the final thing would be, you know, I grew up as a big fan of, you know, George Orwell and Jack London, and I've really enjoyed those. And, you know, there was Polly Toynbee and Barbara Ironreich did similar books where they went undercover. You kind of submerge yourself in a different world and just live it in a way. And it's just then like observe everything and document it. Like that kind of ethnographic study, I just, I find it just more enjoyable than writing and more, just more interesting than writing something just based on, you know, a statistical report or something. It's like really getting to the emotional side of how people feel in that situation and, and whatnot. I find that fascinating. It did get quite a lot of publicity, so I guess you could say it was it was a big break in a way, yeah. The books split into four parts with each part of the country you worked in relating to a company you worked for. So let's start with Rudgley, and I think I'm pronouncing that right, and your work in the Amazon warehouse, not the fulfillment centre that they dressed it up in as corporatees. Can you tell me what you found there and what impact did working there have on your mental health and the people you worked with? I actually think it's Rugely because I thought it was Rudgely and then someone, a local corrected me. So I have to go, I have to defer to them essentially. So Amazon was the first job. Yeah. And I remember the first day I went to apply to the agency for my open day for the agency, just before I got the job, I was quite anxious at that time because you're always worried when you're investigating something as a journalist that there's not going to be any story there. There's not going to be anything compelling to write about. It's, it's, it's a big gamble. You know, the publisher's giving you this sent you away giving you this like contract and it's like you don't know for sure whether it's gonna be compelling enough for a book or if it is whether people are going to want to read it so the first day i went to transline which was the agency i was really worried about really worried about this but then after when i got the job and then was working for amazon it, you know within like a day it was very obvious that it was really eye-opening i couldn't believe some of the stuff i was seeing that was going on there yeah, it was just unbelievable. And then I had like a zeal. There was kind of a zeal about me going around this world because it was like I wanted to tell people who weren't in that environment what the situation was there because it was mind blowing. And yeah, the mental health impact on me, not so much because as I've learned during the pandemic, a big kind of mental health challenge for me personally, and I'd imagine for a lot of people is when there's uncertainty about the future. So the big issue I've had this year is when there's so much uncertainty hanging over the future, it's very difficult to plan ahead. Even now it's sketchy, you know, what am I going to be able to do in six months time? Can I plan to do any research abroad or is foreign travel going to be banned? Or, you know, am I going to be able to go out even you know, in, the, in the evening at all? And for work, like to interviewing or networking people or whatever, it's like, yeah, how long is this going to go on? And Amazon, like when you're doing it just for a temporary period of time that I was, you know, there's an end point, you know that you're going to basically be able to escape after a certain period of time. But people I spoke to who were relying on that for their main income, and that was the biggest employer in Rugeley, Amazon. The uncertainty had a huge impact, I find, on people's general well-being. So Amazon was an environment where you could be fired for, if you got six disciplinary points, you'd be fired. And you'd get these disciplinary points for everything from taking too long in the toilet to, if you took a day off sick, you got a disciplinary point, even if you got a, had a doctor's note. So you were punished for getting ill, basically. And so, you know, if you were five minutes late, you get a disciplinary point. If you were caught, you know, running in the warehouse, you get a disciplinary point. So you can very easily rack up six quite quickly and then you lose your job. And yeah, it's the biggest employer in the town. If you don't have qualifications, it may be hard to get another job quickly. So yeah, you can work as hard as you want, but if you slip up a few times, you can lose your job. And that, that creates a lot of uncertainty and people, you can't get a mortgage 
with that kind of work situation, you can't start a family with that level of uncertainty hanging over you, which obviously has a big impact on mental health. Like in the gig economy in general, the lack of security, the uncertainty about the future, the inability to be able to plan for the future, that has a huge mental health impact. Because if you look at YouGov surveys, when people are asked about the things they kind of value most, one of them that's always up there tends to be economic security. Because so much of our what we take for granted in life stems from that. If you want to start a family, if you want to get married, having to worry about money is, is, is a huge stress. So that did have a, have a big impact on people I interviewed on their mental health. There was a large proportion of Eastern European workers at the factory, James, including Romanians, who you say were oftentimes used as a vehicle or scapegoat for a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment amongst some parts of the local white working class population that inhabited the town, not all, I should say instead of directing their ire at perhaps more legitimate factors or other things at play. A lot of these Romanian workers would ask you why you English, in quotation marks, are working there, implying that you were too good to be doing the jobs they were doing and going deeper, perhaps suggesting that they deserved to be treated like crap, but not you. What does that say about their mental health and psyche, do you think, that were they accepting and normalising mistreatment of themselves? Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, I remember there was a girl I spoke to, a young woman, like 19 years old, I think she was, and she was, like, incredulous that I was uh, that I was working at Amazon. And, yeah, and there was there were several conversations like that, like, people were like, why are, you, why are you working here? But it was typically not the English people who would say that. So I felt like writing Hired, the, doing the research for Hired was easier for me in a way because I was from that kind of background. It wouldn't be weird for me to do those jobs anyway. So I, sl- I slotted in there quite comfortably and no one really you know none of the English supervisors none of the English workers thought I seemed out of place or something or or thought it was weird that I was there whereas I think someone who walks in with a kind of cut glass accent who'd been to kind of Oxford or Cambridge or something they might have a harder time I didn't have to cosplay or anything I fit in properly but the Romanian workers find it odd that anyone English at all would be doing that job so it was basically because like they felt like they were only doing it because you'd earn like four or five times as much at Amazon as you'd earn in anything similar to that in Romania. So you could come over for a period of time, whether six months to a year, just work your ass off in these places, try and keep your job at, at all costs. And then you'd go home and you would live really frugally, like you don't really spend much money. Then you go back to Romania and you actually have a, a bit of saving. Like that money would go quite far there. So the guy was talking to me about how he'd build like a, an extension on his parents' house or something when when he went back home with the money he saved over the summer just to buy the materials and stuff. So that was kind of where they were coming from. There was a kind of level of, you could say, de- it's not it's like desperation to some extent, I guess, in that the money went further. So, and they, often the Romanians didn't know what the laws were in, the workplace laws are in Britain. So they would also be a bit exploited because of that, I think. But their attitude was that English people doing the job had basically failed because this is why we do it this very obvious reason because we earn like four times as much money as we do in Romania but like why would you do this this job like they weren't under illusions about how they were being treated so I heard from several Romanian workers that it was it was Romanian workers who said to me two times they said we're treated like slaves by Amazon it was like two separate conversations we're treated by slaves like Amazon and then it's like well why'd you do it and it was this it was pure economic pure economic factors they were fully aware that they were treated like dirt 
Whereas for the local people, it was people who didn't have qualifications typically. Someone I've worked with who's had a small business but had gone bust in the recession of after the 2008 crash. And so he had to just do anything. And while the kind of Romanian workers were exploited, they did have the option of going back to Romania with that money. Whereas the local people seemed to be more resentful because they didn't have many other options. That's why they were there. And I really didn't hear much like racism like hardly at all from the whole six months from English workers. There were like a few, a handful of instances where there was someone making like xenophobic comments or something. But there was more just like people in the town of Rougely, they would grumble about it. And it was more just because like there was this obvious dynamic where you had coaches of Romanian workers coming in from Wolverhampton, Birmingham, Warsaw, coming to Rougely to work in the warehouse. And the dynamic was that they were being brought in out of economic desperation because no one locally was willing to do that work anymore because how they treat you. So more of the resentment was actually directed at the company than the individual workers. Yeah, you'd get someone who was, who would be ranting in the pub or something about our oh, migrants, you know, coming over here, like taking our jobs and stuff. But most of the people I spoke to at least, it was they were annoyed with the company because they recognised what the dynamic was that the company was exploiting people. Before we move on to Blackpool, there were some really horrific things you encountered in that warehouse, James. The bottle of urine you discovered on a shelf has been well documented. I want to talk about the story of the elderly worker you witnessed being screamed at by a manager, bullied and then fired on the same day in front of everyone. No one stepped in to defend him out of probably fear of losing their job as well. Do you think that is how malpractice and toxicity originates and festers. I thought of that sort of well-worn but relevant quote by Edmund Burke when he said the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men slash people to do nothing. Did you feel that was the case here? Yeah, I mean, that was at Amazon in, still in Rugeley, both the urine and the incident where, yeah, I assume the, the man was fired because I just never saw him again. So because you'd see most people in the canteen at lunchtime who were in your shift cohort. Because I never saw him again, I assumed he was fired. But yeah, I saw one day, I saw a manager just like completely, like verbally obliterating someone who was, I guess, about 60 or something. He was like quite an older guy. I don't know how he was managing to keep up with the rates anyway. Maybe he wasn't and that's why he was being shrieked at. But the same man shouted at me as well. The same like supervisor shouted at me for apparently overfilling a so we had these crates called totes. These like they were called totes. That was like one of the, the nicknames for them. We had these crates, and you'd put them on conveyor belts when they were full of stuff, like Amazon items. And he shouted at me, he like screamed at me one day as well for apparently overfilling it. I think it was, but yeah, just like completely went mad. One of the reasons why this is happening, like you always get bosses like that, like jobs worse. You know, in some dictatorship, there would have been some bureaucrat in the like you know internal police or something if they if they could but they're kind of petty bureaucrats for these corporations and what happened was the reason why this stuff i think was uh why that stuff was like prevalent at amazon was if you were at the bottom of the ladder at the company you were basically viewed as completely disposable so if you were on the shop floor you're viewed as completely disposable and you were just a cog in the in this vast machine of amazon and there's that kind of culture of the company where, so if we go back a couple of decades, a bit more now, to the like 90s, there was more of a culture in business developing of the best way to improve productivity is to treat staff well, is to, you know, you started seeing things like companies putting gyms in their premises and stuff. And, you know, that was a bit later, but there was more of an ethos on ultimately it benefits companies more to treat their staff well, so they're happy, so they stay and invest in their staff and stuff. 
Whereas in the last few years, there's been another culture that's come in from America, really, from kind of Silicon Valley, from companies like Uber and Amazon, where everything's about the bottom line. And there's this view that workers are just replaceable and disposable. And you can just simply, you should pay workers as little as you can. And they don't really matter to the company. It's a very kind of elitist view. They don't really matter to the company. And that permeated right through Amazon. So instances like that where supervisors would talk to you like you're a bit of dirt. And yeah, I mean, I had an example where I was disciplined for taking a day off sick. And then I asked, how is this fair? Because I phoned up beforehand to notify them, offered to get an, a letter from the doctor to say I was sick. And they don't even give you an explanation. It's just like, I was told by the supervisor that Amazon have always done this. That's why it's justified. Which is like a TIF school teacher saying, when you say, why, why have I got to do this? It's like, because I say so. So they treat you like children. They don't treat you how, you know, I think a company should engage with its workforce. And that culture comes, I think, right from the top. You went to Blackpool next, where you worked as a home or domiciliary care worker with CareWatch UK. I may be correct in saying your experience here wasn't as traumatic on a day-to-day basis, although you still experienced a few very traumatic events. I want to focus on the story of Gary here because this part just broke my heart to read. Gary was a man you met who was homeless at the time and you spent the night out with him sleeping rough, which is extremely commendable. He lived with Hodgkin's lymphoma and had tragically tried to take his own life after he was diagnosed. Can you tell me a bit about Gary's life, the sleeping rough experience too, and then what you learned from this experience working in Blackpool? So I met Gary, yeah, in Blackpool. So I went to Blackpool, yeah, first of all. I worked as a home carer and I was there for, I think about six or seven weeks I was in Blackpool for, and it was during the summer. I'd never been to Blackpool before. I'm from a seaside town, so it was interesting just to see like an upscale version of, so I'm near Western Superman now, and it's like a, a much bigger version of that. And the local authority had spent a lot of money on the like promenade. And so the front of Blackpool, like its cover, if you like, if you walk along the promenade, it's, it seems like a really nice place. The beach is nice. It's quite old, old fashioned, but it seems like a nice place. But then you walk just a couple of blocks in from the seafront and there's some of the deprivation is like the worst I've seen. Some of the worst deprivation I think I've ever seen. Certainly in Britain, I think that's the most. So a place called Central Drive, there's a road that comes down from the promenade that goes all the way past Blackpool's football ground. It's like a, f- a few miles long. And it's one of the most deprived areas in England. There was stats, you know, like 25% of people living in poverty there. And there was another weird stat. So some of the health stats are appalling, or they were. So one of the things that really struck me was like 25% of 15-year-olds smoke cigarettes. That's like something out of the 1950s or something. And, you know, you speak to your grandparents and it's like they started smoking at like sometimes 14 or something. You don't really see that anything close to that in middle class parts of the country anymore. So that kind of really opened my eyes. And then Blackpool also had, like lots of parts of Britain, a terrible problem with homelessness. So since 2010, there's been a massive rise in the number of rough sleepers in, in Britain. And Gary, I thought was, I didn't really plan to do anything I met this man called Gary and then I wrote about half a chapter. I wrote, you know, several thousand words on his kind of life story. And I didn't really intend to do that when I first set out to write the book. The book was mainly going to be about low paid jobs. But then when I was in these different towns, so when I was in Blackpool, I started to notice a, you can't leave out the context. I can't just write about doing a job for a care company and then 
ignore the kind of repercussions of low paid work on the community. So Blackpool was a place where there was the work's very seasonal because it's a, obviously a seaside resort. There are lots of low paid jobs. Lots of elderly people go there to retire because they have those fond memories of going to Blackpool when they were younger on holidays. And so they think, you know, oh, I'd love to retire there. And then they move back when they're older. And there's a lot of ill health anyway. So there's a big kind of industry around care work. I would speak to some of the homeless people I'd see around because it's that was part of my journalistic project, really. It's about the economic life of the town and rough sleepers. They're right at the bottom of that social kind of system. And the interesting thing about Gary was how unlucky he'd been. So it wasn't someone who'd you know, there's a image of homeless people sometimes that it's all, you know, drug addicts or it's it's people who've oh, just come from these like terrible families, like, ter like kicked out of the family home or something, which, yeah, you know, that is a big portion of homeless people. But there's also one of the reasons the numbers of homeless went up so much after the 2008 recession was because there were people who were just one paycheck away from homelessness because of their job or whatever. They lived a precarious existence. And then the rug was pulled out from under them for whatever reason. In Gary's case, he got diagnosed with cancer. A relationship had broken down and he'd also then tried to kill himself because of these events. And he survived, which is, you know, that's great. Obviously, you know, he expressed gratitude that he'd survived, but it had also screwed up his life because then he had to spend a long time in hospital and he'd really damaged his legs and he was being treated for lymphoma as well. There was this bureaucratic mistake where someone had forgotten to submit the right form so he could claim universal credit. So when he came out of hospital, he was discharged. He had no money, nowhere to stay. And the form hadn't been done or something. Like the form hadn't been submitted. So he had to just survive for a period of time, hoping that his universal credit claim would eventually go through. And this meant sleeping on the streets. And at the same time, he'd have to go to the pharmacy several times a day to pick up prescriptions for cocodamol and painkillers. He was undergoing chemotherapy. He showed me the lumps in his neck from the lymphoma. He'd have to spend his day begging for change. I basically sat up with him one night because I was out. I was waiting for my clearance to work for the care company. And we sat up. Yeah, basically, I just sat up like smoking and chatting to him. Just sat in. The, it was a horrible August, filthy kind of wet night. And we were just sat in this kind of veranda, I suppose, of a shop or something. And just sat on like cardboard and stuff. And yeah, it was just like bewildering, I guess. For me, it was it was kind of bewildering to, you could see how he was living like a fairly conventional life. He was a painter and decorator, had a reasonable income. And then his own like black swan event was the cancer diagnosis, which kind of knocked the wind out of his sails. And he recently had come out of a relationship and that seriously affected his mental health to the point where he didn't want to carry on anymore. And I guess it's a cliche to say it can happen to anyone, this kind of thing, and then you can, anyone can end up on the street. But I really believe that. It's like he was, a, I wanted to bring him into the story because Gary's like case was a good example of how this can really happen to anyone. You may think you know, your life is sweet and you've got this job and we live in a kind of economic environment now where unless you have that big buffer that your parents have given you or something or whatever, you'll know better than someone who's ended up rough sleeping. It could happen to any of us. There were some other traumatic events you had as a carer, which we haven't got time to go into now, but you can go into in the book if you want to, listener. We'll move on to South Wales Valleys now, where you worked at Admiral Call Centre as a renewals consultant. I believe you were inspired to go here and investigate in memory of your step-grandfather, Len, who was a big socialist, is that right? And in contrast to other places of employment, some of the experiences you had here were positive, maybe you could even call them enjoyable at times, if not 
a little cultish for an office environment. You mentioned some organised fun, in inverted commas, cringy team-building exercises, being a particular example of that, as well as the difficulty of being paid monthly, not weekly, which, given your low salary, was particularly challenging. What I do want to focus on here, though, which is something which we'll go into a bit later on in the pod as well, is how this role affected your ADD, or Attention Deficit Disorder. Tell me why that was. So... I kind of had suspected for a long time that I had ADHD or it's ADD really because I'm not hyperactive. There was always this weird anomaly hanging over my school days because at school I finished school with a fairly poor record in terms of behaviour and my GCSEs like weren't good basically. And it was an anomaly because there were some periods of school where I kind of did really well. I remember like when we had exams in like, I think it was year eight or something before we went to like, high school. I remember like I really aced those exams. I got like the highest in the year for like my math test, like joint highest with someone. And she was like a proper like nerd and, and everyone expected it. I remember my teacher was like, couldn't believe that I'd got these results because I was pretty naughty, pretty like, like class client, I guess. But the thing is, it was so, it would fluctuate so much. And you know, in hindsight, I recognize it was all about concentration. I really struggled with focus and concentration and I didn't really have a... So I was living with my mum at that point and her husband at the time, who wasn't my dad. And I had three brothers and sisters. And so I wouldn't say it was a chaotic home environment, but it wasn't the best place to be doing homework and stuff. My mum and stepdad at the time were, you know, their marriage was ending. It was a lot of arguments at home and stuff. I'd go to my grandmother's where it was actually like a refuge from that. But then, you know, I did end up going to college, university, and I'd written Myth and Meritocracy by the time I went to the call centre at Admiral. I had some academic achievement. I had, like, an MA by that point, which I'd done well in. So, basically, I was trying to figure out why... I'd been kind of thinking about, I need to, like, get to the bottom of what happened in my school days. Like, why did I kind of screw up? Because you go through a period thinking, oh, am I just, you know, stupid? Am I just not capable of doing well academically? But then college, university, that was like not true at all. So I tried to figure it out. And then when I was at the call centre working for Admiral, researching the book, I remember we had like a week long induction because it was working in insurance. The company didn't treat us badly. I wouldn't say at all. I thought the company treated us very well compared to some of the other companies that appear in the book. More of the complaints were more like structural. So the fact that in call centre jobs, you tend to get crap money anyway. And things like, you know, it was annoying that we were paid monthly instead of weekly. And they seemed to spend a lot of money on the Christmas party, giving people a free bar. Whereas I'd probably prefer like a pay, a slight pay rise or something. But yeah, we had this week long induction and I find it very difficult to concentrate during that. Where it's very simple stuff. It's very straightforward stuff. I comprehend it. I understand it. But I noticed myself just kind of switching off for like huge swathes of time. Cannot focus. And I went to the doctor, the NHS the year after when I finished my research for the book. And the NHS doctor, this was in London, he didn't really have any kind of idea of ADHD, didn't know much about it. And I was just basically fobbed off and given, uh, like he was helpful, he was he was not kind of dismissive, but he just didn't know, didn't feel qualified to really talk about it. Gave me a leaflet of a charity and, and encouraged me to contact them, which was disappointing. Then I put it off, events got in the way, I kind of put it off for longer. But then during lockdown of last year, I decided like, because lockdown, when you're in the house with all the distractions, the thing for ADHD is the big things that help are things like exercise, 
spending periods with no distractions at all. So meditation is, is something I find really helpful. Not eating junk food, which again is harder in lockdown when you're in the house all the time. You have to avoid things that are high in sugar, etc. And, you know, my ADHD had got worse during lockdown because you're constantly, you know, around these distractions. And so I investigated it. Then I was diagnosed like privately. I went private basically because you can't get anything in the NHS right now. And yeah, that came out of the originally what prompted me to get the diagnosis was the research I did for Hired. In the final part of the book, you travel to London, where, as you said, you worked as an Uber driver. Can you tell me a bit about your experiences here and how the job impacted your mental health? A common theme of, I guess, a lot of Uber drivers' jobs might be getting abuse held at you by black cabbies. And you mentioned how you did get threatened a little bit by one particular one. Did that abuse ever impact your mental health and did it ever go beyond just abuse and were you able to handle it as well as you could? There was an incident, yeah, where I was kind of sworn at by a black cab driver, yeah. And there were a few instances where they'd give you like dirty looks and just not refuse to let you out or something. That felt like an injustice to me because it's not your fault as an Uber driver, you're just trying to earn a living. I can see from their perspective, but you're kind of being exploited by Uber. I felt like they should direct their, obviously they should direct their anger at Uber, not the drivers of Uber who are also being exploited. It's to me, it's the worst way to kind of go about this if you want to improve people's working conditions is to start fighting each other. It's like really, really, like Uber was exploiting its workers and that was undermining the black cab drivers. So really you need to lobby together for Uber to give workers rights to their drivers and to give them a a living wage so that black cabbies are actually, you know, there is more of a level playing field. The bigger impact on mental health, I think, was the way that sometimes passengers would treat you as an Uber driver. But this is true of other parts of the service economy where you're kind of treated as like a servant. You know, waiters, waitresses get the bar staff, get this kind of treatment as well. You're just there to cater to every whim of the customer. That culture pervasive in retail and the service economy anyway but uber i think it was made worse i think there was a direct link and drivers who i spoke to said this there's like a direct link between what people pay for the service and the way they treat you so because people are getting rides so cheap they view you in a different slightly different way so they view you in an even more lowly way like as almost like a bag carrier or something who you tip at the hotel you tip with a dollar at the hotel or something this came up with drivers i spoke to that they felt like they were treated worse because the and it reflected the rates of pay the rates of fares in that economy and also it's a very lonely and isolating job so you're just working on your own in a cab often the best time to work was like pubs and clubs throwing out time on the weekends so i'd work like often thursday nights friday nights, saturday nights and then really late so till five in the morning because you have people spilling out of bars and clubs and stuff so you get like drunk people in the car just like behaving obnoxiously behaving badly a lot of the migrant drivers i spoke to had experienced like racial abuse at some point and yeah there are funny sides to some of the drunkenness occasionally so i remember carrying a guy me and his friend were carrying like one of their friends it's like students and like i'm holding his feet and his friend's holding his like shoulders and we literally walk him up his garden path his friend opens the door and we like lay he's fine he's, he's just like like half cut and like conscious just about conscious but kind of fine and just like put him on his carpet and lay him on his side just in his front door put some water by him make sure he's all right and then um go on our way and i drop his friend off like there's funny things like that but there's also having to pull over on an a road because someone's gonna throw up in the car so like throwing up at the door driving on like a busy a road or something stuff like that is stressful because if the car's damaged you'll be out of work for 
days or weeks. Days if it's, it needs to be valeted because someone's vomited. It's like you can't work for a couple of days. And if something more serious damage, that's your means of earning any income and you don't get sick pay. So you're not going to be recompensated by Uber. Again, the precarity of it makes it more stressful because there are no safeguards. Whereas when I've done jobs before, like I used to be a postman years ago and I did that for like three, uh, well, two and, two and a half years. And if you get injured on the job or something, say you get bitten by a dog, postmen and women get bitten by dogs. If you have to take a month off because your hand's injured or something, that's crap in its own right. But you don't have to worry about your economic security. Like the company will cover you for your sick pay. So you don't have to worry about like paying the rent and stuff. That's a huge issue in that section of the economy. And it has a huge impact on people's mental health. People's underlying kind of sense of stability and if something bad happens, that I'll be kind of all right. One final question on this topic, mate, before we move on to and go back to your journalism journey is that part of the app's functionality or the Uber functionality is involving sending you push notifications about earning goals you yourself had set. You described it as slot machine psychology, something which I imagine keeps gambling addicts hooked as well. How dangerous are these kinds of algorithms, do you think, and how did it affect you? So with Uber, you are enticed to stay out longer sometimes. That was the one I saw most where... So the algorithm reveals targets you've already hit. So you've earned this particular amount of money this day, or you've done so many minutes, or you've done this amount of jobs, and then it dangles a new target just enticingly in front of you. So, oh, if you stay out for... Do two more jobs, then you'll hit this target. And it sounds kind of fairly banal. Oh, why would that like persuade me to stay out longer? But it presents it in a way that's like as if it's a challenge to you as a driver and it, it kind of gamifies it. So it gives you that sense of achievement, which you want at the end of a shift. You know, oh, if you do two more jobs, you'll hit this target, you know, great work and stuff. And you do get kind of drawn into it a bit. And we there's data that this does actually work. It does actually keep people because you're just in a cab with this algorithm following this app the whole time. And it does tend to keep you on the road a bit longer. Those algorithms do something similar on, say, dating apps, for example. So on apps like Tinder, the companies want to keep you using the apps as, as much as possible. They don't want the happily ever after, if you like. They want to keep you swiping and what whatnot for as much as possible. And they tend to reward users that use the app more. And they tend to entice people into spending money buying kind of upgrades on the apps because by sometimes limiting the matches or they dangle the prospect of new matches in front of them to get them to spend money on the apps. And yeah, I think this is something that there's a growing awareness of how this is like problematic. We may think that we control the algorithms, but in some respects they can end up controlling, not controlling us, but markedly influencing the way we behave. That's something that we should kind of keep an eye on. And I think there is more interest in it now, but it's interesting how, yeah, Uber's one that's like people are getting to grips with that and understanding how that works and calling for regulation. Whereas I think there's the social apps. So as I mentioned, dating apps and things like that, because it's not related to work, there's less of a clamor to regulate those things. It's like, oh, you don't have to use that. Whereas, not to digress too much, but whereas most of our romantic life is moving online now in many ways. So, you know, almost 50% of American couples in 2018 first met through a dating app, just under 40% but it's probably an underestimation because a lot of people lie. So if all this stuff is moving online, then we definitely have to take a, a greater interest in how the algorithms might be trying to gamify our behavior for profit, essentially.
I want to go back to your writing now, if you can, James, and explore the topic of masculinity, which, as you know, we discuss a lot on this podcast. You write a lot about masculinity for unheard, and there was one article in particular I wanted to explore. It's called Do Men Really Hate Women? Now, if you wanted the title to get the views, that was a perfect choice. Can you tell me what you wrote in this article and the issues you discussed? So the article you mentioned, that was a review by me of a book by the journalist and activist Laura Bates. And the book was about the men who hate women. And it was about different kind of subcultures, the kind of toxic side to these subcultures. So it ranged from male subcultures in the so-called manosphere. That encompassed everyone from pickup artists to incels to men's rights activists to men going their own way, which is men kind of dropping out of the dating scene, whether voluntarily or not, and just kind of shunning shunning women romantically because they think that there's nothing in it for men anymore, basically. And Laura Bates, she basically, the book was kind of marketed as she went undercover, but she basically went on lots of forums, basically. So... I mean, whether that's undercover or not, but I mean, it's still, it's still research. So she went on lots of forums of the manosphere and she wrote this book that to my mind, there was a lot that was interesting. And I think it was, it's brave in many ways for a woman to go into these communities because especially, you know, some of the incel forums, they are quite toxic and misogynist, misogynistic, but I find the book quite one dimensional in that it's fairly easy to dig into some of these communities. So with the pickup artist scene to find someone like Roosh V, who is like a pickup artist. And I believe he's kind of, he's now a religious fundamentalist, but he was a pickup artist back in the early 2010s. And just some of the things he said are just vile about, you know, um, I won't go into it now, but, but anyone can look that up. It's someone who's, you know, very clearly extremely misogynistic. And then with the incel movement, you know, you can go on forums and you can find some, you know, really toxic views. Like it's not hard to do that. It's not hard to find that stuff and locate that misogyny. But I find the book was simply providing lots and lots of examples of, maybe it's because I've researched those communities as well that I already knew. It's like a one dimensional, it's just finding all this toxic stuff and putting it in a book and saying, look how bad this community is. Which is, yeah, that's a valid way to go about your research. But what I find more interesting is why are more men being radicalized in some of these different ways in the first place? What else is going on at the moment, whether technological change, whether the social change that is funneling dating more through screens, through apps and through things, apps like Instagram now. And I find much more interesting how that is changing the culture and why there are now emerging all of these like angry subcultures of men who are either feel either completely locked out of intimacy. And yes, many of those people then are radicalized into these very misogynistic communities. And also, you know, bigger societal changes around the, like the decline of marriage and how that's impacting on this kind of growing because there's a growing pool of basically men who are celibate in western societies there's data on this there's a big rise in sexlessness among young men in the last kind of 15 10 15 years and i think some of this stuff should feed into the discourse around radicalization and toxic men's movements on the internet in my article i basically discussed how i didn't really think that Laura Bates showed really any interest in the process of radicalization. Instead, what happened was she'd written this book with a viewpoint that all of this stuff was a result of the patriarchy and toxic masculinity and male entitlement. And I wouldn't discount any of those things completely. I mean, I think you do see in the incel movement, you do see some people who gravitate towards that, who are, it's just like, they feel completely entitled to the best that life has to offer, whether that's social status or their outcomes with women 
and they're not making any effort to achieve those things. And so they have this sense of entitlement jars with reality because the reality isn't meeting those expectations. And so that breeds lots of resentment. But I didn't feel that Laura Bates was really showed kind of any interest in. So some of the people who end up radicalized by the NCL community have mental health problems. So some of them have mental health you know, conditions and disorders. So 25% of people on one of the biggest incel forums answered that they had Asperger's in a big survey of the forum, which makes socializing very difficult. So I guess my argument was that just the same as it was, say, 10 years ago with, say, Islamic extremism and people radicalized and then traveling to go and join the Islamic State, is not to make excuses for some of the kind of horrendous outcomes that some of the misogyny, some of the toxic viewpoints that some of these people hold. The question is, why is more of this happening suddenly? Like, what are the kind of underlying processes that are occurring that are kind of feeding this monster? And some of them, Laura Bates is right to say, some of them is there is a, there's always a backlash against when one group like progresses in a society, there's always a backlash. So with women's kind of emancipation and women entering the employment market and also women, you know, women have more kind of free choice in who they choose for a partner nowadays, whether they hook up with someone or whether they don't. And there's always going to be this backlash against that. But it's not just that. Laura Bates framed it all as this male backlash against women, whereas there are bigger changes that are feeding into this radicalization. So I think just as a final point, I think the book is very current in some ways because not just because of the subject matter, but there are a lot of books at the moment emerging which cater to a very specific ideological audience. So you see almost audience capture with some of the YouTube channels. You see it with the comment sections of newspapers and you, you're seeing it increasingly with books where you'll get all the people who already agreed with the thesis of the book will buy the book and then rave about how, how wonderful it is and give a five-star review whereas the people who aren't you know, already feminists which just won't read the book it feels at the moment so books like that they cater to, to their ideological tribe it's not really a piece of kind of journalism the way i would consider a piece of journalism it's a polemic you know it's, it starts from this premise that this is the problem and then just finds all this material to support the conclusion that was reached before the book was even written let's move on to your most recent project the modern dating academy podcast which i binged through the second i discovered it why did you feel inspired to start it and what issues does it discuss as some people wrongly might think it's a gossip type dating podcast at first glance which it isn't is it no, I mean, it's not gossipy enough, I don't think. Maybe maybe like as the year progresses, I might get some like a co-host or something and, and try and make it a mixture of academic, not academic, but a mixture of like ideas and with some gossip as well, but we'll see. But no, it's not. It's, it's basically looking at that kind of a serious look at some of the trends that are going on with dating as it relates to technology, I suppose. I think this is a very kind of under-researched area at the moment where... We understand how profound the impact of technology is on life in general. So in all areas of life, we talked about the gig economy and technology had obviously a massive impact on the gig economy in terms of people being able to use apps through their phones for employment. But it's also having a huge impact, I think, on, on romance and dating. And it's spawning all of these subcultures, which in some ways are a reaction to some of the changes wrought by the shift of dating from real life to bars and a social circle and whatever to apps. I wanted to kind of touch on that with the podcast. Like you said, you tackle the rise of dating apps in the first episode and the mental health impact they are having on people. I myself have experience with this. I'm not massively good at them. I've deleted all the apps except for Hinge because I think they can be such a 
bad mental health thing for you if you're scrolling through multiple apps day after day. Do you think apps have set unrealistic beauty or relationship expectations in both sexes? Because as you said off air to me, if you aren't photogenic and you don't go to the gym, at least to some degree, it's pretty brutal for men. Yeah, so I mean, the reason I think apps, uh, first of all, from like a male perspective, that's obviously, I use the apps myself and the experience for men and women on apps is very different. It's not necessarily better or worse for either, but the things people face are just very different. So if we start with men, first of all, dating apps, there's a hierarchy on a dating app. There's a hierarchy on Tinder, let's say. And being high up in that hierarchy is dependent on having very good photos, being very photogenic. Typically, it can be being, you know, six foot because they're also on some of the apps, there's a setting, you know, people get weeded out if they're not six foot tall. Women tend to prefer taller men, etc. So what's happening with the apps is it's formalizing certain very, very narrow criteria as the only criteria for dating. So if we look at the history of dating, you know, in the West in recent decades or the last, yeah, recent decades, I'd say is, is the easiest comparison. People don't choose partners based purely on what they look like or how tall they are. Certainly not sexual partners. This narrative now that's dominant on many of these YouTube channels around the red pill and inceldom and some of these extremist like forums, what's happening is a culture is growing up through these movements where, and even in the mainstream, it's percolating through into the mainstream because people think that only a small proportion of men are sexually successful nowadays because that is true of an app like Tinder where everything is about how photogenic you are, how well you present like social status, let's say, how ripped you are. You know, it's a very narrow criteria. Whereas Maya Levitin, who was on my show on the podcast, she went on, I think it was 111 Tinder dates as research for this book. And she said something really interesting was that if you put all of her ex-partners in the room, I think she said, it's highly likely that these are people she met not on, on apps. It's highly likely that she wouldn't have swiped for those people. Because something another guest of yours, William Costello, said to me is that something called compensation game kicks in. If we formalize dating in the way that apps do, we think that dating is something that's logical based on what a person's like, jaw measurements are, what a person's uh, height is, or things like this. And those things are factors, of course, but there are all these other things that come into play in real life, so chemistry. Like sometimes what you think you're attracted to, you're not actually in real life. There's a whole raft of things that come into play in terms of people finding other people attractive in real life and historically, and there's masses of research on this. But dating apps funnel it all through this narrow prism of a certain type of look, a certain type of look if you're a guy and, and also if you're a woman, and arbitrary criteria. So I've spoke to female friends who've put, they're not keen on meeting someone who's like less than six foot. And then I may ask them, you know, I have asked female friends, whether they've ever dated someone less than six foot or hooked up with someone less than six foot, and they always have. But that's one example. That's an interesting example of how what people say they want logically is not necessarily the same thing as what they emotionally respond to in practice. And you could say, why does that matter? But it matters because a lot of these men who end up in these toxic communities, they're transposing the results they get on an app like Tinder, say, to real life. They're transposing that to real life and then concluding from that that they're gonna be forever alone and they're never gonna meet someone because they're clocking up 100 rejections on Tinder in like an afternoon or something. They're projecting that onto the, the real world and assuming that you know if they asked 100 women out in real life that that would have the same result, whereas it wouldn't because, this is the thing, it almost certainly wouldn't because in real life it's a lot more nuanced. 
but I think this is contributing. This is just my view and I hope to kind of delve more into this and produce more research in this area and write about it more. But I think technology is like aiding the kind of, as dating and romance moves online, as the standards of beauty become more superficial, as the criteria in terms of what you select in a partner becomes much, much more superficial and those superficial criteria are more formalized, it's gonna lead to more radicalization because the hierarchy of attractiveness, if you like, online is far more steep than it is in the actual real world. And that's gonna be a problem because then you have all these people who are resentful. You have women who are resentful because the men they find attractive online often don't wanna settle down with them for a relationship because they have all these options online. And then you have men who are simply getting no, you have a big proportion of men just simply getting no matches at all. And then transposing that onto the real world and concluding that they're like right at the bottom of the sexual hierarchy. And as much as we like to think of ourselves as we live in an advanced society where oh, things like that don't matter, there's still that kind of stigma attached to masculinity where if you're not successful with the opposite sex, you kind of feel like a piece of shit. Yeah, there is that stigma attached to it. And I think you see that today with the fact that incels become another insult used online quite frequently is, is, is replaced virgin as the insult of choice. So there's a huge stigma attached to men who are not successful in dating. So many echoes of my own love life here, which we won't go into on this pod. But yeah, I completely agree with so much of what you're saying, James. There's a final question I had on this topic before we move on. And it's a tweet that you wrote fairly recently, I think, about the Amber Heard slash Johnny Depp story. You wrote, quote, men, talk about your mental health, followed by, quote, same people, Amber Heard, slay queen, after she was named as one of the Sunday Times Women of the Year. I have so many opinions on this, I can't really repeat on air, but explain what you meant by this tweet without hopefully getting you into legal trouble. Yes, sure. So, I mean, I won't go into the, the case details at all, but, I mean, you had the court case where, I mean, the, the verdict in terms of Johnny Depp losing that case in terms of keeping certain things out of the media. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't comment on the result of that. That specific verdict doesn't seem particularly unfair. But what emerged during the trial was evidence, it's fair to say, that both partners were fairly abusive to the other. I don't think that's controversial to say that. And I think that being the case, I don't think either member of the relationship should be celebrated, you know, without unreservedly celebrated as, you know, woman of the year, really, for someone who's like, yes, so domestic abuse and violence simply due to, you know, men being the kind of stronger sex and men tend to be more aggressive there are more instances of male violence against women in a domestic setting in, in any setting but in a domestic setting i think that's kind of unquestionable i think there's so much evidence for that i'm fully on board with anti-domestic violence campaigns and etc but then that doesn't mean at the same time that doesn't mean that you therefore should discount abuse emotional abuse manipulation and violence when it happens against men to me that's a no-brainer it's like i've been in I'm not sure I could go so far as to call them relationships, but I've had kind of, I guess relationships, I'm trying to think of a better word. I've had situations where I've been hooking up with someone or we've been seeing each other and the person in question is a bit kind of emotionally abusive, manipulative. And I don't feel like that's always taken so seriously if it occurs to a, to a man than if it's done to a woman. Um, and partly that's a fault of men often because we try and be stoic and, oh, you're like, you should be a man, like it shouldn't affect you, this kind of stuff. And, you know, stiff up a lip and, oh, just don't worry about it. But at the same time, it, like emotional abuse can really damage people's mental health and it can cause a lot of pain and anxiety. And it really disappoints me when people become hugely partisan on these issues. So 
the Amber Heard example would be like a non-partisan view. I think it's, it's basically something close to what I've said. I think it's, I wouldn't personally celebrate either party and I hope the situation is resolved and justice prevails. But then I don't think you should unflinchingly celebrate someone who clearly has behaved in an abusive manner simply because it's like she's on your team. She's on like team woman or whatever. I think that's a, I think that's a really partisan and ideological and unhelpful way to look at this. And I think it prevents men from actually speaking out when this happens. It's really important that men who are being manipulated or abused, it's hugely important that they come forward. And it's massively important that we support them when they do in the, exactly the same way that it's important we encourage women to come forward when they're being treated badly. We've talked loads and loads about your varied and successful journalism journey, James. Let's go a bit deeper now and talk about your own journey in a bit more detail too. You've already touched a little bit on the ADD part, which we'll go into a bit more detail as well. But firstly, walk me through your early life in Bridgewater and those teenage years, no, including or excluding the ADD. Were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the James we meet at this point? Growing up, I mean, I was a fairly generally happy child. So I never met my father. I lived with my mum in Bridgewater. And then she moved down the road to a place called Burnham-on-Sea, which is like a small seaside town, fairly quiet and stuff. Working class slash lower middle class town. And then I used to spend a lot of time at my grandmother's because it was a, my mum was single at that time and just looking after me. And then my gran used to look after me so she could go to work. And then I ended up for all of my childhood and then I ended up going to my grandmother's weekends and holidays and I moved to my grandmother's when I was 16. And I had issues as a, as a child and teenager in feeling kind of out of place because my mum remarried the step, what was then my, would become my stepfather. And she had three children with that guy. So I have like three half siblings, if you like, or just brothers and sisters, as I would say normally. And I kind of felt like the odd one out a lot because we moved to the countryside for like 10 years and it was much more traditional then even like it's fairly recently it was much more traditional whereas by my stepdad's like family i was kind of ostracized a bit because i wasn't his kid basically and not overtly but you you kind of notice things you know you just like notice you're being treated differently and kids are very sensitive to that kind of thing later on i realized that that did have an impact on like my self-esteem as like a teenager as a young adult there were a lot of issues I had to like work through, like retrospectively like work through and yeah, to kind of get through, to kind of live a life as a kind of functional and emotionally healthy adult. Like I feel like I'm quite far away from that now. I feel like I have worked through those issues, but there were definitely periods of time where I used things that I shouldn't have used like so much like as a cope. So I used to smoke a lot of weed like as a teenager and especially in my early twenties, I definitely like wasted a couple of years of my life i was using the weed to like deal with the adhd so like i learned last year when i got the diagnosis of adhd that this is like a really recurrent theme with people with adhd they often abuse marijuana because cannabis can have a very kind of um you know it can be very calming it slows everything down and this is why a lot of people you know don't get on well with it because it slows everything down it makes people anxious and i'm not like encouraging people to use drugs or anything but as a teenager, it was the only thing that I found that would enable me to just switch my brain off a little bit because ADD, ADHD, your point of focus is constantly kind of switching that you still have focus, but you can't pin it down. So it's like being in a wind tunnel with all your thoughts as like post-it notes floating around, 
and you can't like pin it to the wall. And the reason why people end up, when they're untreated, they end up abusing drugs like marijuana is because that slows everything down. So in some ways you're actually more like a normal person at that point. But again, it has loads of negative consequences. It kills your motivation to some extent. So I spent years like in the countryside, you know, just a few friends who still stayed there, staying in the house, smoking a lot of weed, just working some like dead end part-time job, not having a girlfriend for like several years, social skills just like atrophying just from being in the house all the time. And to pull yourself out of that, that was a huge challenge personally. When it comes to your ADD, you decided to get counselling treatment for it as an adult and you also take medication. How did both of those things help you and your mental health, if they do? So seeing the psychiatrist about it was, first of all, there's a mental health benefit in that you're validated in that there is actually a disorder in my brain which causes the ADD. Like until fairly recently, like when I was a kid, it wasn't something that was taken seriously. It was seen as, you know, oh, it's just like disruptive, like hyperactive kids. It's like, oh, they don't want to do the work. They're just not disciplined and stuff. Whereas there's much more research been done on the brains of people with ADHD and ADD now, where you can kind of pinpoint it as a disorder. You can see kind of what's going on there with the lack of impulse control and things like this. And also why certain medications like stimulant medications help it. I've only just started medication. So it's still kind of figuring out how much that does help or not. There are lots of other things that can be done besides medication. So meditation, I'd recommend. I was already meditating for a long time. Meditation is like, for me, is really important because you are basically learning how to switch off your brain. So with ADHD and ADD, that has a massive benefit anyway. But I think meditation is just great for anyone. But the thing is with meditation is to persevere with it because it's hard, first of all, to exist in that, with that stillness. And it's incredibly hard when you have ADHD or ADD. It's incredibly hard when you start off to generate that kind of stillness within yourself. But when you persevere with it, like, so if I meditate, keep going with it, build momentum and meditate for, you know, a few weeks like every day and keep it going. When I'm not meditating, you know, I really feel like I can like bring myself back to that state of stillness that I have when I'm meditating. It becomes more and more available, like on command to have that kind of presence in the moment. And that's been really helpful. The medication, the jury's still out a bit because they do seem to be beneficial. I'm finding it helps. No one is in a normal mental state at the moment. Nobody really under lockdown in Britain. Everyone has that kind of underlying level of anxiety at the moment. So it's not necessarily exactly the same effect of the medication now as it will be, say, when everything is closer to normal because that kind of underlying sense of anxiety will have dropped away. So it might be even more beneficial to them, but we'll see. Like you said, your sixth form college years were not the drink, drug and sex fueled skins like antics our peers were perhaps getting up to. They certainly weren't mine. Maybe the drink side, but apart from that, not not so much. During this period, you told me it was pickup culture, which you discovered first before it then led you to perhaps less controversial self-help methods. Explain how that transition came about. You know, who's the James we meet at this point? And then also as well, I just wanted to touch on the advice you were given. And I guess a lot of men are given when it comes to luck on the dating scene or getting luck, I should say, is pretty trash, isn't it? So if I go back to, say, I guess a real low point in many ways in my life was around the period from about 2003 to 2005. So that two year period where I was working kind of two days a week part time in a retail job in a petrol station. 
I was smoking a lot of weed. A lot of my friends had moved away to university and like not come back. There was just like a couple of friends I see regularly each week. I hadn't had a girlfriend for like about three, three years, I think, something like this. My life wasn't really going anywhere, basically. Lived with my grandmother, you know, bless her, but lived with my grandmother in the countryside. Not much opportunity here. And I kind of reached like a, a low ebb, I guess. And in 2005, I'd gone back to college and my social skills were like, because I was out and about a bit more, I wasn't just in the house all the time. Your social skills tend to like improve a bit. You become gradually a little bit more outgoing. But I'd been like through like several months of college and there was some girl I was interested in and I got basically like friend zoned. <laughs> got basically a friend zoned or something. I just got to like a point where I felt like if I didn't radically change, my life was like stretching out before me of, it seems like over dramatic, but when you're like a late teenager, like early twenties, it's like, seems like a huge thing. I'm never going to get a girlfriend. Like I need to figure out, like I didn't really understand cause I didn't, there was nothing wrong with how I looked, you know, necessarily. It's like, yeah, oh, well, like my mum seems to think I'm like a handsome boy, but there's nothing like visibly wrong with me. I'm not like morbidly obese or, you know, it, I didn't feel like, but it was something about my personality, basically. I was really shy. I was very like unassertive and that kind of thing. And so, yeah, one day I went home from college and I had the computer set up at my grand's house, like a Mac. And I remember Googling like how to get a girlfriend or something. This was, yeah, 2005, like, how to get a girlfriend. And it was before the Neil Strauss book, the game came out. So I typed this into, not Google, Yahoo, must've been. I typed this into Yahoo and I ended up on this forum and it turned out to be the forum that appeared in the book, the game, this like forum. It was like pickup artists and stuff. And I like read the forum for like a period of time. And I was kind of put off by a lot of it because as has been established since, it's like a lot of it's like quite manipulative. And I was never really like persuaded by this stuff. And the underlying frame of a lot of the debate was like, it was objectifying is like a cliched word, but it was very much like women as like slot machines and stuff. And you just have to press these buttons. You just have to press these buttons or like perform these like certain tricks. And then like a woman will be interested in you. It's just like, I was really put off by all that stuff. Like I read those forums for a bit, then I moved on and I got more into self-help around like just self-improvement. But I guess there was one thing I did glean from, which I did kind of retain from the pickup forums, which again, it's like a highly unfashionable thing to say that now. But one thing I kind of retained from that stuff was there was a mentality to that, that your social skills, how attractive you are or something, it's not fixed. The mainstream narrative is that don't worry if you can't get a girlfriend, say you're a young guy, don't worry because like fate will take care of it or just be yourself. That advice is like meaningless advice, really. Fate will take care of it. Well, like fate isn't real. So like, I don't believe in fate. I wasn't persuaded of that. And then the other thing was, you know, you just be yourself. And it's like, well, I have been myself and my life is like garbage. So like if I carry on being myself, I'll carry on presumably getting the same outcome. It's logical. But the mainstream kind of fobs you off and it's typically like older adults who are married and stuff already or in long relationships and it's just like, oh, you'll be fine, don't worry about it. It's just got no idea, you know. What I took from some of those communities, there's loads of toxic stuff, but the one thing I took was I realised I had to proactively like improve my social skills. So I met a couple of friends and I then started to go out to Bristol, like drive to Bristol, which is like 40 minutes driveway. I had this like shitty car, my grand's car actually, I used to borrow. A Nissan Micra, like old school, like it looked like a milk float. So I used to drive it to Bristol on a Thursday, Friday and Saturday night. I'd meet up with a couple of friends, like equally nerdy guys, but we were like determined to like improve our social skills. We were all relatively smart. You felt like shortchanged, like the people who were successful in dating and stuff, 
it wasn't like nerds and stuff. I was into like punk music, I was kind of a nerd and used to stay in like reading a lot. But it wasn't like people like us, it seemed to be like the jocks as we'd call them then, who like do well with girls. So we used to go out Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. Uh, we used to go out sober and we used to basically set each other like goals. So like you'd go out on a Thursday, it sounds ridiculous, right? But we'd go out to like Yates's bar and then Oceana as it was called at the time, I think. And like each of us would have to like approach to start a conversation with like 10 women each night just like start a conversation in the club or something you're not allowed to drink um or we it was like one drink or something like that and yeah it sounds completely weird and like try hard and i don't think it was like creepy because we were just kind of trying to figure out how how socializing worked we had to figure it out because it didn't come naturally to any of us it certainly didn't come naturally to me and doing that for like a period of six months then i went to university it massively helped because what happens is you, we used to go out and we'd approach people and start conversations and you'd get blown out. The thing is, nothing really bad ever happened. The worst way you'd get like blown out is someone would like just ignore you or turn their back on you or just like give you the, like the face. But nothing really bad happened. But then occasionally you go up and talk to someone and they're like, oh, hey, it's just a friendly person who like, that's the thing. It's like if you go out and you're being social, uh, people often do want to chat and it's like, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean you're going to end up your, like your girlfriend or something, but people are generally quite friendly if you project that yourself. And you start having these more positive interactions. You start, I remember, yeah, I did actually have a girlfriend for a little while after a couple of months of we've been going out a lot. I got into self-help and going to the gym and that kind of stuff. But there was like a really foundational lesson for my like adult life that I'm someone whose social skills like didn't come too naturally. I was someone who would go to, I, my gran used to take me to like play football and cricket as like a kid. I'd be the one who's like on the periphery, like afraid to like speak up. There'd be the like boisterous kids would always be the ones who are like the center of attention. And I would just be like the shy one chatting with like the other nerdy kids on the periphery. That experience weirdly, like ironically, passing through the edges of like this fairly toxic community. I think a lot of people do get drawn into that for the reasons I did, because you're in this like hopeless situation. The advice the mainstream is giving you is rubbish. And so you get drawn into these toxic online worlds. And like, I didn't get drawn into it, but I can see why a lot of people would carry on down that path, if that makes sense, because there are certain things that even the most extreme and, and unpleasant online communities there's a reason people gravitate to them and sometimes that Jamie Bartlett wrote a really good book a few years ago called Radicals and it was about even the most like radical communities there's often some like tiny kernel of something they pinpointed it, the gap in the mainstream and then people get drawn to this there is some reason for that and in my case it was like a paucity of practical advice about how you improve your social skills the pickup community and the self-help community some of their solutions they offered were strange so most people I think would not do something like that, like go and just start approaching people as a way to kind of improve your social skills. Because it was hard, it was a weird thing to do, but the thing is the alternative was weirder and harder. That was why that leverage existed. And I think unless you've been in that position yourself and been in that kind of hole where you take desperate measures to dig yourself out of that hole, it's myopic to just dismiss that process in the first place. And I think that's why I'm interested in why people get radicalized into these movements, because it could have really happened to me. I want to end this topic, mate, on something quite dark and potentially traumatic for you, but one I hope educates a few listeners. At the beginning of the pandemic, a woman you had been in a short relationship with or was seeing began stalking you. If you could, just tell me the story behind this and how it affected your mental health. As I understand, 
when you first reported it, you weren't taken very seriously. Yeah, so 2019, I'd hooked up with a woman. We'd hooked up like, and then hung out, I think three times we hung out. So met like out, hooked up, then went on like a date and then another time just like hung out at my place. And I wasn't really interested in, this wasn't here, but this was like when I was traveling. So I wasn't interested in anything more than that because I wasn't going to be in that place for a long time. It was in the States. And also I just didn't want to get something heavy when I'm, yeah, when I was traveling and when I was this period of my life, just wasn't interested in that. And there was no real rancor. There was no like deception or like one person pretending that someone wants something more or anything like that. It was just like a pretty regular like, hookup, I guess, where you wouldn't think anyone is, is expecting particularly anymore. Anyway, yeah, that was like August, 2019. Then I like kind of broke it off. We kind of went our separate ways. But then I started like over the next few months, I started getting like, occasionally I'd get just like a flurry of like abusive messages on like text or WhatsApp. Like, first of all, try to engage because it's just like, this is weird. I didn't think that person would be like this because in person they weren't like that. So it was like, what is this? I tried to engage. And then I thought like, all right, there's something, something is like off about this person. And so I blocked them. Um, it was just like, I, I don't want this toxicity in my life. So I blocked them and then it moved to like social media. So I blocked them on there and I thought, you know, oh, that's it. It would just be like, like really like someone you've just seen like three times. It shouldn't really be this huge deal. Right. But cause she'd found me on social media. Then the worst part was she started to like harass friends of mine. This was the weirdest part. This was like the most disconcerting part really, because when it's me just receiving some abusive messages, I just feel like it's like whatever I just block it. I get abuse on Twitter all the time and stuff anyway. It's like whatever, just block and move on. It's like not my problem. But when other people are contacting you and saying, who's this crazy person talking about you and saying this stuff, can you get them to stop messaging me? Then it's like, you're getting like much more scary and, and weird. It just seems like, why would someone do that? And the fact that someone is so unpredictable and weird makes it you more anxious about it. Like, what are they going to do next? So yeah, I had female friends in particular who appeared in like old Instagram stories, like on the kind of reels, like, you know, you have the Instagram reels where it's like old stories of the past year or whatever. In my old Instagram, I had to delete it because of this issue. I had, you know, reels of things from like a, the past year and it's like various friends in the stories and stuff and us traveling and just screwing about and whatever. And she was going through those and like messaging all the women in the stories, regardless, just friends, ex-girlfriends, girls I hung out with, just random people, just all this abuse from like burner accounts on Instagram. And this went on for like several months and then she started really targeting one of them. So this girl started contacting me saying, oh, like, do you have the details of this person? She's going to go to the police about it because her business is being harassed on Facebook and stuff. To her, it's just like a random person. But because she's in, appeared in one of my stories, it's just like, like one person is targeted, then it like fans out. It's like resentful stalking, it's basically called, where someone has this grievance or grudge and they feel like they've been wronged in some way. And so they just target this person. And then sometimes, yeah, it fans out and just targets. Yeah, it's like, it's a mental health issue, I guess. I couldn't really explain why someone does that, to be honest, but it went on for months. And then at the start of lockdown, like on the 16th of April last year, it really reached like, uh, that was when it was at its most extreme. So there was like fake emails being set up in my name and then places I worked for, like being bombarded with like emails from an address pretending to be me, like a Gmail address saying also like defamation about me and stuff. I wasn't worried. It was the person hadn't written coherent sentences. It was just like these weird like sentences. And then like James, James Bloodworth, like drug addict or like 
party animal or something. It's just like weird accusations written in an incoherent way. So I wasn't worried someone would take it seriously, but people are receiving emails, places I have to deal with for work, purporting to be from me. That could damage your career if, if they think you're spamming them with your emails. And so yeah, I reported it to the police here. The police in the, in the US were pretty helpful, to be honest. I reported it to police there and it went on for ages though because they had to do search warrants, send search warrants to social media like Instagram and Twitter and Gmail, which took several months to get back. The police in the UK weren't helpful at all, whether it was because of COVID or they were supposed to set up a call so I could basically phone the suspect. Police in the US could listen in on the call, but we'd have to do it like in a station here. And they just didn't get round to it. So me and the US police had to like scrap that idea because the police here just, after several months, it's just like they're not gonna get round to setting that up. They just weren't bothered. But the FBI got involved in the end and visited because it was cross state and it involved like some extortion as well. So she ended up trying to extort money from me with like blackmail and stuff, just like she'll carry on doing it if I don't send her money. And the FBI got involved then because it's extortion and they visited her and then it stopped <laughs> and it stopped. Yeah, they visited her and then it stopped. And also there was one female friend of mine. It became almost as bad as what was being targeted at me. It stopped for her as well, as far as I know. Nothing's happened for like, fingers crossed, for like six months. But there was, just to finally round off the point, there was a, a New York Times piece last week about someone who'd faced a similar thing. His father had fired someone at this company in the US decades before. This woman who'd been fired had taken up this grudge against her, against the son of the guy who'd fired her. And then it fanned out to all these other random people who were associated with him. So she was like writing all this stuff on the internet and bombarding them with all this abuse and stuff. I guess it opened my eyes to like you can't be too naive about people you meet, whether it's in a romantic or professional or social context in that there are people out there that you do not want to get in the crosshairs of. It's not like I felt like I'd done anything wrong or anyone who got in that situation had done anything wrong. You just got in the crosshairs of someone who clearly has issues of their own and interprets everything in the world as some kind of slight towards them and then pursues this like vendetta against. And the internet allows that to happen. Like Pre-internet, it wouldn't be an issue, but the internet, especially if you have any kind of public profile, people would say, oh, just don't go on social media. If you do any kind of public facing media job, you have to be on social media or you basically don't exist. We have come to the final topic of conversation, James, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, and you can definitely include the circumstances we are living in or excluding them, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? My mental health at the moment is, I'd say fine. It's fine. It's moderately good. The big caveat is obviously the pandemic. I don't feel that there are any huge underlying issues that are there. I think all of my anxiety and at the moment is tied to the pandemic. I don't think it's, I'm particularly exceptional in that respect. I feel like I have mechanisms in place to, like coping mechanisms on, on the one hand, I guess, but also mechanisms in place where I don't just turn into a ball of anxiety throughout the day because of, oh, well, like what's going on with the pandemic? So yeah, so it's, it's not too bad. It's just, I'm having to be more proactive about it than normal life. So this time last year, I do the things I know I need to do, like go to the gym, meditate, make sure I'm, you know, keeping in, in touch with my family and maintaining relationships with friends and things like this. But it's fairly easy to keep that ticking along and those things all, all affect my mental health. But this year, I can't go to the gym. I'm stuck in the house all the time. I'm not really speaking to a, a large number of people, certainly not in real life, face-to-face -face interactions. 
And so, yeah, I've had to be a lot more proactive about my daily routine and just not staying in bed all day or something or not just like sitting around the house. So keeping those like structures in place. What age do you think you were, mate, when you first realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I've always been quite an introspective person because that tends to happen when you're often as a kid, when you're quite shy, you tend to be more. So I was, yeah, as a kid in school, I was always quite reserved and that can make you more. It did for me anyway. It seemed to make me more like introspective. So I'd be taking my own temperature internally in terms of my emotional state more because you're almost having those conversations with yourself in your own head a lot. That can have a downside, like being in your own head is not where you want to be like in a social setting. But yeah, you're kind of taking your own temperature. So I'm aware, even when I was younger, I was kind of aware of my emotional state and how my emotional state manifested in the way I was going about life, but also how I started to realise, I guess, that I did have some leverage over my emotional state. So that's why when I got into something like meditation, for example, I got into like Eckhart Tolle in university, first of all, that was like my intro to meditation and about being present and I think that's useful for my mental health because it gives you more of that emotional state control. So if I'm feeling like depressed or something, I can kind of take a step back a little bit and be the higher observer of my emotions and recognize that I'm depressed. It's an emotional state for me anyway. You know, I'm not clinically depressed. It's an emotional state. It will pass with time and putting it in perspective a bit. That's kind of helped me. So this moment will pass as, as the kind of cliche saying goes, but it was really important to actually recognize that it's not always going to be the same that you can affect your emotional state. And also personally, I found like changing my physiology, learning that changing my physiology could have a direct impact on my mental health. So say I'm sat in the house and feeling bleak about the future and about the COVID situation, changing my physiology. So going out and going for a walk, going for a walk for one or two miles. My emotional state is like resisting me doing that, doesn't want me to, like, I don't want to, I just want to like stay and like, but then through like sheer force of like changing my physiology, going out for the walk in half an hour's time, I often feel like way better. And I come up my problems from a new, slightly more optimistic perspective and because I've changed my physiology. And that was why gym is always something that's, that I find, like I really hate people glibly dismissing gyms as like gym bros and stuff and when the gym's closed it's like certainly in like middle class London like journalistic circles some people go running but not that many people go to the gym it's like more of a working class thing in my opinion that weightlifting anyway my working class friends do it that I do it I go to the gym and it's more like working class people there in the weights room generally big generalization obviously but I hate these glib dismissals of it oh it's just like toxic masculinity or lifting weights is still perceived as this like fairly fringe activity among middle class people but why it annoys me as well is because for me personally it's improved my mental health like loads changing your physiology doing something even if you do if, even if i do nothing else during a day if i've been to the gym that day and i feel like i've just showed up and done some of the work i feel like it's been like a, a reasonably a reasonable day it's been productive in some way i've not just wasted it i've actually pushed myself a little bit that's been a huge thing for my mental health 100% mate I definitely agree with everything you just said about the gym I miss it so much at the moment I miss the social interactions I miss even the guy who spends three hours in there because he's chatting to everyone he doesn't like doing he doesn't want to do his workout I'd miss chatting to him so yeah I miss everything about it and, the, and what you said about routine it's been a big thing for me routine and it helps you 
feel like you've done a productive day even if you do nothing else and weightlifting for me is, is a big thing for me as well as cardio but I don't get as much from running to be fair so it's mainly a stopgap right now running. When it comes to the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health can you tell me the story behind that you know who was it with what impact did it have and at the time did it feel like a big thing and a weight had been lifted or did it feel quite insignificant and normalised? So, funnily enough, the first conversations like I ever had about my mental health would be probably with the guys I used to go out with in Bristol, like to visit bars and clubs and stuff with, weirdly, because like I found, and, and in the kind of self-help, self-improvement sphere, it was through getting into stuff like that that I found people were more willing to talk about their mental health, which kind of goes against some of the stereotypes around like self-improvement, which is that the stereotypes you might read in say the guardian or something about self-help is that it's all just surface level and it's just about like individual self-advancement and this kind of thing and about being stoical and whatever but it was the self-help people i suppose who i met through that who were actually sometimes too kind of introspective almost because it's it become it can become like self-obsessive some of the stuff around like self-care and that it can be at its extreme end it can be an excuse to be just a narcissist but at the same time, like having conversations about, you know, when I started going out with friends to like Bristol and with the intent of improving our social skills and whatever and forcing ourselves to go out of the house and like inhabit environments where quote unquote cooler people would be like bars and stuff where we just felt out of place and like desensitizing ourselves to that. We would talk about our mental health with each other as well because emotionally every fiber of your being would be rebelling against what you were actually doing. So when I first started going out and being sociable and stuff, I never ever wanted to emotionally go and do it. I never wanted to drive 40 minutes sober to Bristol, stand outside like the club or bar waiting to get in, just real nervous. It's intimidating. The music, I can hear the music inside. It's like intimidating, like all these cool people just to go in and then just get like rejected like a load of times or just like ignored just as this like little like weird like nerdy kid but then you have to do it and so you have to just show up and do it and you have to kind of control your emotional state to some extent you have to subdue it and just do the right thing take the right action like going to the gym you don't want to go to the gym but you do it anyway you just have to do the right thing because you know ultimately that will improve your mental health taking the right action so sometimes there can be a short-term emotional and mental health cost to doing the right thing if you see what i mean like stepping outside your comfort zone i really didn't want to go away move away to university emotionally like when i first went to nottingham to go to university a lot of me emotionally is responding against that because it's like anxiety and like don't want to move away from like no one in my family's gone to university oh, shouldn't i just do what they've done so there's a short-term like discomfort and mental discomfort cultivating resilience around that is important i find that particularly this year and I, I suspect a lot of other people have i find this year that i'm a lot more resilient in many ways that, than i thought i was and all of us i think have different coping mechanisms right now those aren't always like healthy coping mechanisms so i tend to like binge eat sometimes and this is something that adhd people often have a problem with because binge eating provides a dopamine hit that you're lacking as someone with ADHD, you need more of that dopamine hit because your dopamine levels are lower. And this year, so yeah, we've all had to figure out what our coping mechanisms are. But I think it's also, we've all had to be really resilient in terms of just existing with that uncertainty. Uncertainty can be the biggest mental health challenge, like not knowing where you're going to be in, in the future. And just finally, James, and thanks so much for your time and putting it aside for this pod. 
What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to? I think society has moved in the direction of healthy conversations about mental health in you know recent years, specifically men's mental health. So while I think there can be value to the, the idea of being you know stoical and, and whatever, I think that's kind of there's a lot of harm done by simply bottling up your emotions. And it's very important to, for men, I think, as a collective, if you like, to recognize that maintaining your kind of emotional fitness is just as important as maintaining your physical fitness. And everyone goes through periods of their life where their mental health you know situations present themselves which are challenging to mental health so i was someone who in some ways until 2020 and the pandemic i thought you know my mental health was pretty good it, and it was it was my i thought i was in a pretty good place emotionally and and whatnot but then sometimes events can kind of knock you off your feet and the pandemic was certainly one where i had to find within myself like a certain amount of emotional resilience to get through it and you do find yourself like questioning yourself and struggling sometimes and talking to people can help it's not always enough but that can help but i think understanding that you're struggling and that's fine is really something we should encourage in men so like if you're in a place where your mental state is not the best and if you're struggling that's legitimate you know it doesn't make you any less of a man and i think that absolutely open up to friends about it because everyone's been through the same thing. I find when I've spoken to friends about it, you sometimes think, oh, maybe they'll just think I'm like weak or something. But then you speak to friends and they'll almost always like come back to you with their own mental health challenges because everyone faces it. But sometimes we all face it, but we're afraid to open up to the other person about it. Before we go, we should point out that Amazon responded to the claims made in James's book, Hired, when it was published. An Amazon spokesperson said, quote, Amazon provides a safe and positive workplace for thousands of people across the UK with competitive pay and benefits from day one. We have not been provided with confirmation that the people who completed the survey worked at Amazon and we don't recognise these allegations as an accurate portrayal of activities in our buildings. We have a focus on ensuring we provide a great environment for all our employees and last month Amazon was named by LinkedIn as the seventh most sought after place to work in the UK and ranked first place in the US. Amazon also offers public tours of its fulfillment centres so customers can see firsthand what happens after they click buy on Amazon. Amazon ensures all of its associates have easy access to toilet facilities which are just a short walk from where they are working. Associates are allowed to use the toilets whenever needed. We do not monitor toilet breaks. End quote. With respect to illness and monitoring attendance, the spokesperson emphasised Amazon has, quote, a range of initiatives to support our people if they become ill at home or at work, and we've recently extended these to include improved on-site support, end quote. And, quote, if someone is ill, we want to help them get back to work when they are fit to do so, end quote. The spokesperson likewise said Amazon no longer has a points-based attendance policy, which it changed, quote, following feedback from our associates and staff, end quote. Quote, if someone is sick, we will have a conversation with them to understand their own individual circumstances. We completely support our people and use proper discretion when applying our absence policy. End quote. Regarding reasonableness of targets, Amazon spokesperson added, quote, As with nearly all companies, we expect a certain level of performance from our associates and we continue to set productivity targets objectively based on previous performance levels achieved by our workforce. Associate performance is measured and evaluated over a long period of time as we know that a variety of things could impact the ability to meet expectations in any given day or hour. We support people who are not performing to the levels expected with dedicated coaching to help them improve. End quote. 
Well, we have finally come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a massive thank you to James for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for checking in with me. I also want to thank all you listeners who got to the end of this pod and I hope you gained a lot from it and learned a lot from it as well. If you have made it, I commend you and I'll put some links to where you can follow James on social media, purchase his books in the show notes or any of the other articles that we discussed in the pod. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please do give it a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling generous, write us a review. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or support our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash ventshelpuk. Please do if you can. Every penny counts and you'll go on the supporters wall if you want to as well. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. Vent.